0: Hi there. My name is Rob Verkirk. I'm here to have a discussion with Dr. Damien Downing. Damien is one of the doctors in the world who's been working with vitamin D longer than any other living clinician. Um, I think the time span is well over 40 years. He wrote the book Daylight Robbery in 1986, to give you an idea of how long he's been banging on that drum. Um, And I'm gonna talk to Damien really about what's going on with vitamin D in relation to COVID. So um, Damien, fantastic to have you here. So Damien, obviously when COVID-19 first came along, um, no one knew much about it at all, any of the factors that would either protect or trigger um, more serious disease. We're, we're eight months on now, Damien. Um, in a nutshell, where are, we are, where are we now in terms of understanding the interactions with, with vitamin D?
1: I'm not sure that it's true that we didn't know anything back at the beginning. we have to say, at the molecular News Service, we've been putting out stuff about uh, vitamin C and vitamin D ever since January on this, and that stuff's been available for for years. Well, there was since Linus Pauling in the 70s, for heaven's sake, you know? So we did know that, it's just that nobody was listening. Now, a, a number of, you know, respectable academics, if you like, have uh, looked at it and thought, oh, this makes a load of sense, and done some, uh, you know, population surveys and things like that, put the data together, and what that has achieved it has, is to confirm what we already really knew from first principles. You know, so, so what we now know better is that vitamin D has a, a major impact on the, uh, the handling of the virus, how, how much of a threat to us it is And we also know that you can can intervene acutely with vitamin D, which we didn't really know before. I'm not advocating this as a universal policy, but uh, if you've forgotten to take vitamin D for the last 20 years, and then you get the virus, then you can take big doses uh, rapidly. You take something I don't know, 50,000 units over a week, something like that and you will get an impact. Yeah,
0: uh, of course, the the uh, issue in terms of first principles is that the virus itself wasn't well known. So, um, I mean, I, I think you've, the key point that you're making is this idea of confirming um, a general notion that, that if you have adequate vitamin D status, your risk of any respiratory virus, and in in many senses, um, this coronavirus is not behaving that differently in lots of ways when it comes to the innate and cell-mediated immune system.
1: Yeah, that's true. I mean, and that's uh, uh, something that we always would have argued from first principles, but now we have good evidence that it is specifically true for vitamin D and uh, coronavirus. So, so we... Uh,
0: obviously look at the fact that that vitamin D status in terms of um, circulating vitamin D is um, associated with how much sunlight people are exposed to. Um, When you look at the sort of geographical relationship, I know you've been looking specifically um, at data from Europe. What kind of picture are we seeing? Are we seeing people, you know, obviously Spain and Italy have had relatively high levels. Um, Sweden hasn't had um, massively high levels we had that initial peak they had their own care home disaster as many other countries did Spain UK included Um, but what have you picked out of that data in terms of understanding the relationship between circulating vitamin D and its ability to protect people
1: from serious COVID disease? So you picked up on the um the uh, geographical thing that the nearer you are to the equator. uh, Obviously the more vitamin D you're capable of getting so that there's um, uh, when you get really, actually when you get north of Paris, it's pretty hard to keep your vitamin D levels up uh, all the time, certainly through the winter. And when you look at um, a population like ours in Britain, then pretty much everybody's deficient in January, unless they've got a Caribbean pole that they've been using. Um, Or South France, I suppose, bold help. Um, But it's not as simple as that, as as you also detect it. And I think the main uh, other factor that you have to bring in really is age because uh, the, you know, the mortality rate uh, goes right up with age. And of course, so does vitamin D deficiency, particularly if you're less mobile and uh, confined to a care home. Who in a care home ever gets the kit off and sunbathes? And, and
0: and when you get into a care home and you're aged and you have a dark skin colour, does that make a difference? We know that skin colour has a big difference when you're younger. Does it have less of an impact, possibly because people are exposed to less sunlight anyway? As
1: you get older, your skin gets less efficient at manufacturing vitamin D when it's exposed to ultraviolet light. So you may need to uh, have an extra need for taking it orally, which of course people don't do. And uh, if you've got um, darker skin tone than us Northern European types, uh, then you're at an obvious disadvantage there. I don't know, frankly, I doubt whether there is uh, any body living in London, or in, in the UK with uh, brown or black skin tones, who has an adequate vitamin D level unless they're taking supplements. And this applied particularly, of course, to the medics and care, healthcare workers who, who died early on. I think we're up to 200 yeah, the Majority of them being uh, black and minority ethnic
0: two-fold increase in in, in mortality, and, and obviously vitamin D is, is one factor amongst others, including, you know, social determinants of health,
1: but um, it's never the Yes, but, so, but I mean, you know, healthcare workers, well, doctors certainly don't tend to be, um, you know, socially deprived. Uh, so how come they are just as badly affected as uh, you know people who are obviously socially deprived living in a in a rough part of Leeds or whatever. well let, let,
0: let's we'll, we'll move on in a minute to looking at how that pans out in terms of what governments are, are recommending but before we do that just on the the geographic um, relationship between or, or if you like the, the the data that shows how different circulating levels amongst different populations, different countries, correlates to um, mortality or COVID disease. So we've, you've specifically been looking at um, data in Europe, looking at whether or not there is a correlation between um, circulating vitamin D status and mortality.
1: What have you found? Looking at this graph, along the bottom, you've got the population average for vitamin D levels, in I used it in the, the nanomoles per liter units that we tend to use more in uh, in Europe, and you can and across the upward going upwards. So you've got the deaths per million population uh, from the virus, and uh, I mean, of course, these data will be out of date now uh, because we're a few months on but you can see that there's a pretty strong correlation there. Now, this was in a paper by Eileen and others uh, that came out back in, I think April. Um, and I had to redraw this from uh, for copyright reasons. So I uh, tried to make it a bit clearer as well. And uh, you can see that the graph goes down to zero at about 75 nanomoles, which is, uh, you know, is a reasonable um, level of vitamin. D. It's, it's a level that a lot of the laboratories use as the bottom end of vitamin D adequacy. Uh, although you can argue uh, that there are more, that more is needed for a lot of reasons. If you look back up to the top of that curve, you can see there's Spain and Italy, and also there's, to the left of that, there's Spain older and Italy older, meaning that older people in a separate study, these are all studies that were done several years ago, um, older people tend to have less vitamin D than uh, younger people. Presumably because they're less mobile and uh, they spend more time indoors and uh, don't get out to the beach so much. And I mean, really, if you look at those two societies, Spain and Italy, um, older women tend to uh, be dressed completely in black and um, you know don't go much further than uh, sitting out there outside their front door or. Uh, down to the local shops the David, so,
0: Yeah, that, I mean, that's a really interesting point. So even if you live in a sunny climb, if you spend a lot of time indoors or you're covered, you will end up in the same situation as someone who lives in, in, in a northern climate. Um, could that possibly explain, when we look at the global data, we see a kind of few outliers, a few warm parts of the world, like Mexico, Peru, and Brazil, in which we've seen pretty high mortalities, could that be a similar explanation for why we see high
1: mortalities in those countries? Nobody suggested that you only needed vitamin D and well, everything will be solved. That's you know, goes completely against the basic principles of nutrition because uh, when you're treating something with an antibiotic or other drug, you only have to break one link in the metabolic chain, and that does the job. With nutrition, you've got to repair all the links in the chain for, for the thing to work. And so, of course, as well as vitamin D, vitamin C, and there may be well, well be dietary reasons, particularly in urban societies, that they don't get enough vitamin C, zinc, and so on and so forth and may well be other factors, but yes, the, um, uh, that cultural one could well be a part of it as well.
0: Well, it, it's interesting when you look at um, similar latitudes, say, in sub-Saharan Africa, we don't see the same level of mortality per 100,000 or per million of the population at all. Um, yeah. and we see quite a distinct difference in, in South America. So there's certainly in terms of social, environmental determinants of health, government policy, etc., there does seem to be quite some divergence there um, yes. um Damien, let's move on to looking at um the practicalities of of vitamin d um let's talk first of all cofactors um there obviously is there consensus around specific cofactors that you should always be taking to ensure that the vitamin D or, or, or excipients um, to, to make sure that the vitamin D is well absorbed?
1: I, I think there's kind of a consensus on, on two things, and that's vitamin C and zinc. Um, vitamin C, the, the unique thing about this virus uh, compared to ordinary flu and respiratory viruses, is, is the the time scale. And uh, if you get flu, I mean, it lasts what four or five days. Then you feel a bit whacked out for a while afterwards, and, you know. But the acute phase is over like that. But with the this coronavirus, it's uh, it's two or three weeks after the onset of symptoms that people end up in intensive care and needing extra support and so on. All of that time, your body is trying to uh, deal with the virus and one of the most important fields it needs for doing that is vitamin C. So uh, by two weeks, well, by the time you've been handling this virus for a couple of weeks, you can get into an acute induced scurvy, vitamin C deficiency, and that's when it all goes nasty in your lungs and and so forth, yeah. So vitamin C, obviously essential, and I mean, yeah, should be taking it all the time. Zinc, we know its impact on uh, on viral replication and so forth, and we know that uh, you have to get it inside cells in order for that to work, and that, is precisely one of the things that hydroxychloroquine and the other things like that do. They're known as zinc ionophores. They just transport the stuff into to cells. So if you had to have an absolute minimum set for uh, dealing with this coronavirus, I'd say vitamin D, vitamin C, and zinc. Now, of course, there are people who have a, a variation in absorption and so forth. And particularly for vitamin D, bear in mind that it's a fat-soluble vitamin. So if you've got a problem in the digestion of fats, you will have a problem in the absorption of uh, fat-soluble vitamins, including vitamin D. And, um, frankly, the digestive problems like that almost always start with the fats. The reason is that the breakdown of uh, proteins and carbohydrates is pretty much done by the time the food leaves the stomach and goes into the small intestine. Is for the fats that you then need the enzymes from the pancreas and the bile from the liver, and so on and so forth. So, you know, anybody that uh, says oh, I can't tolerate fatty foods. That's a general digestive problem starting up, and uh, it's going to affect their vitamin D status. And, and what's the way
0: around it? Um, fix the digestion is, is a big one. Um, are there cofactors that you can take with your vitamin D to ensure even in a digestive system that's not absorbing fats well to improve absorption? Do we just
1: take more of it? Um, you could, I mean, you can probably put the darn stuff on your skin if it's in a suitable form and bypass it, but obviously it would be preferable to try and address the the problem. So it's not ideal to just take a, um, you know, something that suppresses the symptoms, like a, a peristalsis. Encourager or something like that. You, you can take digestive enzymes uh, and so forth. But really, it's often you know, what you should be doing is sorting out the underlying problem. And probably like nine times out of ten, that's in the liver. Yeah. So all our livers get pretty stressed by um, you know life in general and the le- the steadily increasing level of toxins to which we're all exposed. And the, um, the, the so tech-
0: yeah. and the take-home point here is that, actually, if you don't test, there are so many factors that can um, be in the way of getting um, yourself into the optimum range that testing yourself and understanding where you're at is, is going to be pretty key, and that's obviously
1: fundamental to this campaign. Yeah. And it's, it's really not that expensive these days. You can get, a, what, 29 quid, is it? You can get
0: a test for, yeah, yeah, or you can uh do a, a self test um and get the results inside of 20 minutes. Um, oh, how much does that cost? 39, um, 10 10, ten right, okay. Um, but um, yes, no, that's that's it's a very useful way to go. Um, what about magnesium, Damien? Um, uh.
1: Magnetic is kind of like vitamin D in that um, practically everybody's deficient. It certainly is one of the commonest uh, mineral deficiencies, far away, uh, one of the commonest mineral deficiencies around, and it's uh, essential for so many hundreds of different enzymes as a cofactor that, I mean, it affects everything. It affects Um, Magnesium is what your body uses to store the ATP, the energy currency that is produced by the mitochondria. So if you don't have enough enough magnesium, uh, that has an impact on mitochondrial energy production. And that, of course, has an impact on the immune system, particularly when uh, things are you know, caused on, called on, to produce a, a clonal burst. You know, the the immune system, when you need it, you need it big time in a hurry. And it, and it's very energy um, intensive
0: in terms of the resource that it relies on. Yeah, that's right. Absolutely. Um, moving on to um, your, I'd be right in saying roundabout. Four decades worth of uh, clinical clinical experience, a lot of it with vitamin D, Um, your Daylight Robbery book published in 1986, if I recall correctly. Um, Damien, if we wanted to give people um, the most useful advice based on age, skin color, let's focus in on the most susceptible groups. So these are people who are chronically deficient, they're going to be older, um, different skin colours. Um, some of them will have genetic variations, you know, on their vitamin D receptors, for example. D- different people will have different degrees of um, um, gastrointestinal health. What kind of ranges should people target in order to get you into that sort of 100 to 150 nanomole per litre sweet spot for circulating hydroxyvitamin D?
1: Okay. Um, there's uh, it, it does vary, you're right, and the, the, the amount that people need for all sorts of factors, the ones we've discussed and no doubt many others. Uh, so you don't necessarily know how, it, how, long, how much it's going to take or how long it's going to take. Uh, but on the other hand, there is very little uh, bad news if you overdose, you know. And the stuff is generally so cheap that uh, you might as well go for the overkill. I don't think there is any real point taking less than uh, five or six thousand. Um, the uh, the grassroots people in San Diego who did all the, uh, you know brilliant work on this over about the same length of time as you're reminding me, I've been writing about it. Um, They say that it takes 6,000 to get 95% of the population up to the right level there. Uh, And if you want to do it in a hurry, then you would obviously take more than that. And I don't really see uh, a problem with taking, let's say, ten or twelve thousand uh, a day for a reasonably short length of time. Perfect. Um, and uh, of course, if there is an acute situation, yeah, you know, to do it. You could you could do more than that. You can take. Um, there's uh, the, the paper from Cordova. Uh, showing them giving 25 hydroxy calcifediol uh, to people acutely. If you work that out in terms of uh, the ordinary vitamin D equivalents, it works out at about 18,000 units a day for a week. Yeah. And that really made a big difference.
0: Yeah. So, short term, even up to 20,000, are you in order to level and then a maintenance dose that can be lower?
1: Um, yeah. I'm, I'm confident in saying that you'd have to take at least 36,000 units a day for an extended period in order to give yourself any risk of side effects. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that's these kind of
0: levels are definitely at odds with what governments are recommending and obviously government. Data recommendations seem to be much more based around the levels of vitamin D required for bone health. I mean how, Why is there such a discrepancy between what governments are recommending and what we clearly need to take to
1: to it, get... it come down to one committee second the scientific advisory committee on nutrition because uh, I've tracked this and they said a, a few years ago um Oh, over 4,000, you know, there's a risk, but um, there's a risk of side effects. But they gave a reference for that, but of a paper by Reinhold Wies, which doesn't actually say that at all. What it says is there's a risk of, there are some reported side effects over a blood level of 500 nanomoles, which, uh, you'd need to take thirty-six to forty thousand units a day for an extended period in order to achieve. Yeah, I'm so that's where it comes from. And then, I mean, you get this bizarre thing about um, you know the Scots thinking that uh, oh, you just have to stick your heat out of the garret window for ten minutes, and you'll get enough sunlight. Frankly, in I mean, in London, you won't get enough sunlight to produce any vitamin D. At all at this time of year. Not until next April we will be seeing it again in uh, in Glasgow. I'm not sure you ever do.
0: Uh, absolutely, which is which is why this campaign is called test and take because um, yeah. you can just take without the test if you want, but you'd have to be at the upper levels, particularly if you are susceptible. But but the testing really does give you a reminder of how much urgency or how how high your dosing needs to be in order to get you to that 100 to 150 level which is a lot lower than the you know 4 500 nanomol per liter um danger level um and and Damian, very quickly what kind of side effects if you did massively overdose what kind of side effects are we looking at
1: well you get um hypercalcification so you get you know Calcium deposits in inconvenient places Uh, but um, it really doesn't happen very much you know and of course it does uh as the the point is made that um the symptoms of vitamin d overdose are exactly the same as the symptoms of vitamin k deficiency and we know that you need vitamin k uh, in order for a number of things to uh, happen in response to vitamin D. Uh, yes, a lot of it's about bone health, but the other area that you get uh, a high amount of vitamin K around is in the brain and the nervous system. Uh, so that, um, you know, it helps to have a clear head and feel bright about these things. And there's a constant traffic between the nervous system and the immune system, you know, an intense two way traffic. Absolutely. So, in terms of these cofactors,
0: we've looked at um, zinc and vitamin C. We've also looked at magnesium, now vitamin K. Um, what about omega 3 fatty acids?
1: I don't think you need them for the absorption, do you? No. Uh, I, have a certain, I have something of an issue with uh, omega 3, which is that really we're giving people too much of them and it is fairly well established that you need a ratio of omega 6 to omega 3 of 4 to 1 both in your own tissues and in your diet right now it's true that omega 3s uh, are anti-inflammatory but the the good Lord didn't give you inflammation just to make your life miserable. It's there as the first step in the healing cycle. So you cut yourself and it goes red and the body sends out the signal, we need these molecules, these cells, and so on here now. They go there, they do the job, and it's got its automatic cutoff, uh, which is this uh, alpha MSH that Richie talks about. And that should happen naturally. If you don't have enough omega-6 or equally, if you have too much omega-3, it can have the same effect, then you never go through the cycle. It gets like a stuck record. And so instead of acute, effective inflammation, you get chronic, ineffective inflammation. Yeah,
0: But but we know that a lot of people who uh, are eating a standard American diet type of, of, of diet will be very high in omega-6s and very low in omega-3s. So it may be that they need to just cut down on some of the, you know, uh, sources of refined vegetable oil, seed oils that they're consuming in order to, because they're they're often sort of 15 to 20 to one, um, rather than one Uh, ratio.
1: When I I was writing about, when I was writing Daylight Robbery, I made the point that if you're sunbathing, you're quite likely to be by the sea, where the the food, the diet is potentially rich in omega-3s, and so it's you know it's quite natural to uh, have a high intake at that time. But i was quite happy for people to preload uh, themselves with omega-3s before going on holiday and going on the sunbathing, or whatever. And the same would be fine with. Um, with the, uh, the virus, the problem is, you don't know when you're going to get it. So I mean, if back in March you gave yourself an intensive month or couple of months of uh, lots of oily fish, great. But if you're still carrying on now, it probably could be getting counterproductive.
0: Yeah, yeah. Coming back just before we, we finish off, on the formulations um, and mentioning the, the fact that people who have um, problems absorbing fat will also have problems absorbing fat-soluble vitamins. Um, there are an array of different formulations out there. One of them uh, is the idea of a sublingual spray. There are quite a few on the market. Might that be um, a possible improved and delivery system for someone who has problems absorbing fats?
1: It it might be, I I don't really have the data on vitamin D sublingually, I'm afraid. I know about it for B12 from practical clinical experience and um, B12 is uh, a similarly complicated molecule that in part of its absorption and recycling is fat soluble. So it's it's similar and certainly uh, sublingual uh, administration works better than just taking a tablet of it, but it doesn't, it still doesn't work ideally. So you may have to give it uh, by injection or transdermally or whatever. Um, What we tend to do with um, the fats in general is to emulsify them, make a smoothie. That you know, for physical reasons, that makes it uh, more absorbable. You know, in making it smoothie, you're blending it up vigorously, and you're creating nano droplets of the oil. These are that's the why the emulsion stays made.
0: Bio emulsion. So presumably, that's the kind of formulation that you take, Damien.
1: Uh, I just stick the um, the oil of vitamin D on. At the, at the moment, but when I'm doing uh, limits in general, yeah, I do exactly that. Absolutely. So look, um, the bottom line, everyone
0: is, um, one of the reasons we've launched the campaign is that um, there are hints of a second wave. Certainly we are seeing the case rate go up. We have yet yes. to see um, hospitalizations and mortality go up significantly. And of course, let's not forget, there were many parts of the world in the so-called first wave who didn't really have a wave at all. Particularly if you look at say Euromomo um, and look for excess mortality there, you'll see that I think it's only about nine European countries out of the 24 Euromomo partners showed any excess mortality. So moving to 2020, 21 winter, what's your take on what's gonna happen um, this time round, moving to this winter?
1: Well, I think that we know about this country that um, it was as bad as it was first time around, basically because the government managed to mess up so many things, you know, like they, they ignored the existing uh, public health systems in the country and gave up and established what they uh they dared to call NHS test and trace which actually employs more than 20 uh private companies in, in the system and um because of uh, well let's assume it was political reasons rather than personal gain uh but uh, I mean, it was a disaster for those reasons. But the other thing that they messed up was that uh, they discharged patients from hospital into care homes uh, when, when they were probably carrying, or many of them were carrying um, the virus. And so they, they guaranteed that it was going to be a disaster that time around. And um, this time around, I'm like, it's all the young people surely that are getting it and you know, the papers will find somebody who of 18 who dies of the virus but uh, you know it's, it's invisibly rare really and so you could uh, you know, remove the uh, the lockdown and so forth from students and they would be fine. It would just mean they couldn't take their laundry, have them and see granny for a while.
0: Yeah, uh, absolutely. And, and of course, that's, I think, where the debate between opposing scientific camps lies. You put your resources, imagine if you put your tests and trace resources at the interface between the rest of the population that are living normally and the vulnerable community, those with comorbidities or those who are older, um, you would have a very, very different situation to, compared with trying to spread that resource over the entire yeah. population. Um, yeah. exactly. So um, Damien, um, that's been very, very helpful. Um, thank you so much. We, we're going to point to more resources um, that you can look for uh, further information. but. Um, Damien, perhaps clinically, if you can just leave a couple of take-homes, what everyone should do, um, linked to testing and dosing for vitamin D, um, that would be
1: really helpful. Okay, the message is pretty simple. Uh, take vitamin D. You're gonna to have to take a supplement and also get some vitamin C and take that. Just take it all the time.
0: Brilliant. and and. Um, in terms of testing um is it useful to test yourself for vitamin d before you start supplementation and then say three months later what what?
1: yeah i do not see why you have to to wait three months really i think you could do it a month or six weeks you know three weeks less than three weeks is a waste of time you're not going to see a significant change but uh i know people going for higher levels the, the test their patients every month, and it's a useful way of doing it.
0: That's fantastic. Damien, it's been great talking to you as always. Thank you so much indeed.
1: Okay, it's been a pleasure.